Welcome back, pod people. Today's guest is Len Kabasinski, the king of uh, independent micro-budget action genre films. Uh, he, in a career spanning at least 17 years, he's made over a dozen movies from his first film, Swamp Zombies, to his most recent film, Pact of Vengeance, available now on patreon.com slash killerwolffilms, which released July 1st, 2022 and uh is currently exclusively on patreon as of the recording of this although by the time you listen to it it might have been picked up by a distributor let's see uh so len is it okay if i call you len that's perfect yeah great so len uh in pact of vengeance uh you directed a wide variety of people with like interesting and diverse backgrounds you've got uh the actor musician john micklethor the adult actress turned more mainstream actress uh lisa neald you've got um professional wrestlers pretty peter avalon and diamante and you've got martial artists such as yourself and the late great leo fong and so what I'm curious about is when you're directing people with all of those different backgrounds, either in other forms of action or uh, not in any form of action at all, what do you need to do differently to get the sort of performances that you want out of them in those different action scenes? Well, first off, thanks, Thomas, for having me on and thinking of my works. I appreciate it, man. Thank you very much. Uh, but in terms of, uh, you know, I've used wrestlers, independent wrestlers, professional wrestlers. And I, by the difference, I mean, uh, you know, they're all professional wrestlers. You know what I mean? Whether they're doing uh, shows in somebody's garage or not, it seems like these days. But uh, a lot I've worked with guys from WWE or AEW, obviously, all, all kinds of uh different uh, federations and stuff through the years and martial artists of course it's very easy for me normally to put my friends involved and have a lot of martial arts experience and things like that so uh, the primary reason i use guys like that especially for action scenes is because they know how to fall generally and we're not talking about like you know stuntmen coming in from hollywood uh, they're used to falling if they're you know or how to take falls in martial arts or rolling and things like that same obviously with professional wrestling probably even more so uh, than martial arts in, in that faction when you're taking bumps working with people and stuff like that so uh, a lot of that kind of stuff translates over and uh, what a lot of people don't know about me kind of thing is i got my start in theater so i'm a stage choreographer first for fight scenes so I've choreographed slapstick comedies, I've choreographed Shakespearean uh, plays, uh, you name it. Uh, I, I've probably choreographed it at some point. I, I've done Carrie, the musical. Uh, I've done all kinds of different styles uh, and genres, basically. So uh, to, to put it all together, really, it's about the choreographer and, you know, I'm choreographing fight scenes to what I think they can do. You know, if if the great Leo Fong, I miss you, buddy. If Leo Fong can't do a, a spinning back kick, uh, I'm not going to give him a spinning back kick at 93 years old. I'm going to give him something I feel he can have success with in a fight scene. And in a, a lot of times, you know, Leo had more of a boxing background to start. Uh, yeah. And Bruce Lee and, and off he went in, into the, his martial art uh, endeavors as well. But uh, that and he was with Ron Marchini from Karate Cop. They own schools together and stuff like that out on the out in California there. So uh, ever since, you know, he, he kind of got away, not so much got away from boxing because I think he mixed that in with his own martial arts system he was developing there. But uh, Wei Kun Do, if I recall correctly, right? Correct. You are absolutely correct. Yes. Uh, and, and, you know, he kind of put it all together. And uh, I remember when... Uh, 
he told me, he's like, Len, you know, uh, he's got a kind of a Southern accent, uh, Leo does. And he's like, yeah, Len, you know, uh, I'm talking to Bruce and stuff. And, and, I, and Bruce is like, why are you doing this or doing that? He's, you know, all the styles and stuff. Or why are you training in all these different styles? And, and Leo was like, well, well, well Bruce, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for the ultimate man. And, and Bruce Lee had told him, he pointed to Leo's chest and he said, you know, the ultimate's in you. You know, not all these other things you're trying to, to grab onto to see if it develops you, but it, it's in you to start. Uh, and, you know, that, that kind of I know why he told me that, because, uh, you know, Leo is the quintessential independent filmmaker, if not maybe not micro budget filmmaker. But from the 70s, uh, in the 70s, you couldn't make a movie. Uh, for $30,000 or anything like that. I mean, not really. Uh, you, you had to buy film. Yeah, you had you had to use 35 millimeter film or at worst 16 millimeter. But uh, even really, if you did that, you weren't going very far back then. So 35 millimeter was the standard and stuff. But uh, right, to make a long story short with your original question is, you, you, normally I, I'm choreographing to what I know each participant or each actor or actress can do. You know, uh, Lisa Nell, the Playboy uh, uh, centerfold there, you know, she's a, she's a pretty athletic woman, uh, but at the same time, I'm not giving her super complex, uh, intricate martial art choreography or, or, or wrestling, grappling choreography or anything like that. Uh, but uh, you'll see it for yourself to impact Avengers. But she's done fight scenes for me in the past, but she's got a rather unique one impact. Yeah. Um, which I have already seen, and I advocate that my uh, uh, listeners also go check it out. Um, yeah, so that's interesting. You, you brought up uh, choreography, it sounds like you're largely designing towards uh, the actors. Yes. I'm curious also if you could talk about uh, designing towards the characters, because I, for me, the biggest difference between what's just like a, a good action film and a great action film is how the action set pieces really serve the characters and the story. And so to give uh, two contrasting examples, um, I really loved all of the different distinct uh, action set pieces in um, Challenge of Five Gauntlets. Thank you. That was very intentional. Thank you. Great. Yeah. Uh, and in, in contrast, in um, something that the Marvel Cinematic Universe has been getting flack for recently, uh, and especially a few years ago, it came out that in Black Widow and Black Panther, there were several fight scenes in there where the fight scenes were written and choreographed before they wrote the script and before they hired the director. And so they seemed like out of place in the film and didn't really serve the characters or serve the story. And so uh, I was wondering if you could comment a bit on what you like to keep in mind, what sort of methods you use to make sure that they action scenes aren't just superfluous uh yeah you know uh first off i know a little bit about the marvel cinematic universe i grew up uh, collecting marvel comics that was kind of my thing uh and, and i feel they've done three characters i really really love to death a disservice so uh if the marvel executives are listening to this podcast if you will give me danny rand iron fist and let me do this correctly and give the people what they want so I'm positive I can do this. So <laughs> give me the budget and please give me Danny Rand from Iron Fist. And I will correct that travesty that it was a Netflix. Sorry if you liked it, people, but I thought it was very, very, very pedestrian fest. Um, also, I uh, uh, Johnny Blaze, give, give, give me Ghost Rider. 
I, I've ridden motorcycles my whole life uh, and things like that. I feel they did it a disservice. I know everybody loves Nick Cage. I do too, but he's too old to play Ghost Rider and things like that. Give me the story of Ghost Rider and I'll, I'll put back in the more of that origin tale that I feel they kind of miss the boat on maybe a little bit in those movies and stuff like that. Uh, but th those are two for sure. And uh, I'll just throw in one because I'm always advocating for this to be a movie. But now with the way that these films go, I'm not so sure I, I would want it unless somebody like me does it or somebody with a history of kind of B action, give them a budget. Rom Space Night is something I always wanted to see. Uh, I feel I can really do that justice. So uh, Iron Fist, Rom, Ghost Rider, those are the three I would pick. Uh, you know, and I know people thinking of me think, well, he, he would pick Shang-Chi or, or something like that. Well, no, Iron Fist is my martial art guy. You know what I mean? But the other ones I would pick are Rom Space Knight, and I'm sure I would put some martial arts in that film as well. But, uh, <laughs> Ghost Rider. But, uh, but yeah, you know, in terms of putting and choreographing, uh, again, you got to choreograph to what the actor's abilities are. But when you're writing a character, uh, like you mentioned in Gauntlets, Everything was very uh, calculated what we did. There's a fight scene where I got a permit and I fight this ninja character on the beach. So naturally we wanna make sure she has the proper weapon. That's a, a ninja katana blade and stuff like that. So that's stuff we think about. People might not think so because they're used to uh, being introduced to Len by, you know, my early films that, you know, have a lot to be desired kind of thing. But, uh, you know, that doesn't mean we didn't think about stuff back then. We just couldn't pull it off maybe. And maybe I still can't. But uh, we definitely thought about it as we were doing films like that. Uh, the ninjutsu character, we knew what kind of strikes and punches she would do in that character in Challenge of Five Gauntlets. Uh, the guy from South Africa that has the Avenging Force white mask on that he fights in, 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 in the woods kind of thing. Uh, all those moves and stuff like that. It's all, all that stuff was calculated in choreography. Uh, you can really see the difference in Challenger by Gauntlets when I, when I fight uh, the uh, character played by Tim O'Hearn, who plays the Scot, where he's uh, in the lumber yard and stuff like that. And, and his character is just meant to be a big brawler type person. And, and that was very conscious in the choreography where my character of Kane goes in with a lot of high-flying choreography, uh, you know, martial art type stuff, but he's really wrestling this brawling wrestler guy. So uh, yeah, it, it very much makes up the character, but uh, something I've really tried to do in the past couple years, uh, it's a few years now, I, I can't believe it's been six, going on six years since Blood Prism, uh, a movie I did, Blood Prism, which is not an action movie, not a martial art movie, but you turn, you mention choreography fitting characters and, and that kind of development. But I also think lighting can do that. And in the movie Blood Prism, I really tried to make the Jallo lighting its own character in the movie kind of thing when it happens. And whether I'm successful at that or not, that's up to the viewers. But uh, I, I think all those things can really go a long ways in terms of putting those characters where you want them to be in your story and in, in your direction. Yeah, I haven't seen Blood Prism yet. I, I definitely want to. You've got, you've made over a dozen movies, I think. So I, I haven't gotten around to all of them yet. Yeah, I think, I, I don't know, 16, 17, I don't know, something like that. <laughs> I, I, I Nearly one a year. I don't watch stuff very much anymore. I appreciate people that find it and still watch it. But uh, uh, really the stuff that I keep pushing people to watch is after maybe two thousand After Angel of Reckoning, uh, I believe. After Angel of Reckoning, or Angel of Reckoning and on. Because yeah. Angel of Reckoning, I feel, was a real turning point in terms of quality for, for our stuff. Yeah. Um, so speaking of uh, your history with uh, micro-budget filmmaking and more broadly, um, there's a long uh, 
grand history of independent filmmaking on very low budgets like this from the early days of john waters and ed wood where john waters got around that uh 35 millimeter film being expensive limitation by stealing some 35 millimeter film from someone who could afford it uh all the way to the invention of the VHS with uh, Sledgehammer in 1983. Oh, sure. uh, and yeah, uh, David Pryor did that film. Sledgehammer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then more recently, uh, films like Tangerine, released in 2015, which was shot on an iPhone, and uh, films like Host, uh, released in 2020, which was filmed over a video call like this. And then uh, other films like Corona Zombies, also released in 2020, which was made by um, just a bit of filming, mostly in somebody's house, and then using other footage from older films that they purchased the rights to. Uh, it seems like independent filmmaking is more accessible from a technological and financial perspective than ever. And as uh, I believe your early films were shot on video. Is that right? Yes. Uh, uh, Swamp Zombies was the only one shot on non 24P and then the rest of them were okay. all 24P type cameras. Uh, Swamp Zombies, I still have the camera. It's the Canon GL2. Uh, even for back then, it was a not a high definition camera, but a nice camera for back then. Just not a nice camera to like shoot films on and stuff like that. But uh, for just a prosumer camera and stuff, I thought the GL2 was fine. But uh, after that, we went to the DBX100A, which I thought for what it was actually had a decent film look uh, quality to it. Uh, I bought it off of a biker dude that was shooting documentaries for the Discovery Channel. And he said, hey, you give me a thousand bucks for this DVX 100 day. I said, sure. Uh, <laughs> and then Curse of the Wolf, Fist of the Vampire, um, uh, Windigo, Bound by Blood. There, there was tons of, of films I did that uh, you know I shot on the DVX 100 A and uh, Warriors of the Apocalypse, or much better released, uh, re-released as Apocalypse Female Warriors. Uh, that was split between the DVX 100 A and uh, the HVX uh, 2000 or whatever they called it, the HD version there. So, uh, but then uh, you know going into Angel of Reckoning, it's still video. We we used the Canon uh, G20 which I thought was a really nice looking versatile camera. Again, we don't have the interchangeable lenses and stuff on a camera like that, but uh, you still had some depth of field. You just had to be creative with your zooms and how the distance you are from your subject, your subject from the background, all that kind of stuff. And I, I feel we, we pulled some good tricks with uh, the, the G20 on Angel of Reckoning. And uh, um, I have a G21, which I didn't even use on, on any of the films, I don't believe so. Uh, but the last few films, uh, the Canon, uh, oh shit, what is it? It's an HD camera. We filmed Gauntlets on it. We filmed Hellcats Revenge 2 on it. Uh, Swamp Zombies 2 was filmed on it. The name of the camera escapes me, but uh, but yeah, it, it's one of the Canon interchangeable lenses. We went in with 35 millimeter, 85 millimeter, and uh, 24 millimeter uh, lenses. Uh, but uh, Pact of Vengeance was the first time uh, we used a, a 4K camera. We used the Black Magic, uh, Pocket Black Magic camera. And again, same uh, amount of lenses, a 24, a 35, and an 85. And uh, and uh, yeah, in 4K, it it, uh, it was an experience for sure. But uh, the first film I did in 4K was actually uh, Pact of Vengeance. Cool. I... C100 yeah. is the Canon I'm thinking of. I'm sorry. The Canon C100. Canon is what, C100. Is what uh, Swamp Zombies 2... Uh, Challenge of Five Gauntlets and Hellcats Revenge 2 were all shot on the uh, Canon C100. All right. Thank you. I'll definitely uh, look into those cameras. That's really interesting. Um, well, so well, 
the Canon C100 is HD, but you're not going to get 4K in the way things are going now. Uh, there's there's 6K cameras out there, for God's sake. I mean, I mean, you know what I mean? The C100 is going to go by the wayside quickly, but it does look good. Uh, but at the same time, if I had to give advice to somebody, look into the 4K and 6K stuff now. If it's got interchangeable lenses, that's honestly, that's the way you should probably go. Yeah, it looks like um, Blackmagic has released a 6K version yeah. of that very camera. So. Yeah. Yep. All right. Um, so uh, what do you think is coming next in the field of uh, low budget filmmaking aside from the using 6K cameras? Um, if I had to guess, it's probably a continuation of some kind of digital revolution in terms of like special effects and stuff. Uh, I know in the horror community, nobody wants to see a lot of digital effects and stuff, but sometimes it's a necessity. You can't really get around it. Uh, the same in action movies. I, I think what it's going to have is the lower budgeted we go. I mean, for action movies, how many explosions in a low budget action movie did they call in a pyrotechnician, bring in 5,000 worth of explosives, pay him $2,500 just to blow one thing up? How many, how many low budget, micro budget people do that? Not very many. Uh, yeah. You're getting a stock footage or you're doing a digital effect. And uh, I think the digital effects, if I had to pick, are something that is going to improve uh, in terms of quality for micro-budget filmmakers, just like cameras have done. You know, we're not filming on super VHS. We're not killer nerd anymore. And, you know, that kind of thing. So, uh, uh, yeah, I think if I had to pick something I think will improve drastically over the next five years, it's probably access to, to true good digital effects work. Okay. Interesting. Neat. Yeah, I'll, I'll uh, keep that in mind as well. Um, Aside from you, the other uh, micro-budget action film studio that uh, I pay a lot of attention to is Wakaliwood. Have you heard of these guys? I have not, but I just did from you, so uh, continue. Oh, man. Okay, so I definitely recommend checking them out. They're um, a, like, one, started by one guy and then, like, the few people that he's taught uh, and you know, got to help him out. Um, they're based out of Wakaliga, Uganda, and they make um, action films and uh, things in a variety of genres, but um, typically more like grounded uh, action or drama. Um, and they, uh, the the sort of uh, pro probably their most famous tagline is "Everyone in Uganda knows kung fu." Uh, and uh they make extremely low budget like i i'm not actually sure these days what what people mean when they say micro budget but um like the budget for their first film was 80 dollars yeah yeah, yeah I mean, <laughs> with, that would fall micro budget to me when you talk micro budget uh we're talking zero dollars to up to i would say probably anything less than six figures is probably more micro budget cinema. Okay. You get up and above a hundred thousand dollars, you, you know, yeah. I, I would say that's more of a B movie, low budget movie, anything from a hundred thousand dollars to maybe five or $6 million would still be a low budget film. Uh, but yeah. really any, anything under six figures, I would say is like micro budget cinema. Okay. Yeah. I, I definitely recommend checking out, uh, Wakaliwood stuff. Their, their first film is available for free on their YouTube channel. It's who killed captain Alex. Uh, and it's one of my favorite action movies uh, of all time. They do an amazing job with just one camera, uh, no budget and 
just some really dedicated people who know Kung Fu. Um, and because they're not constantly doing like a bunch of, you know, close ups and cuts back and forth and shaky cam the way that a lot of modern uh, mainstream action is filmed. Instead, there's a lot of wide shots. You can really see everything that's going on and it's really enjoyable. Um, yeah, well, I mean, some of the times, I mean, you look at a film like Fight Club or something like that from years ago with Brad Pitt. I mean, they use a lot of creative editing, stuff like that. You get some of the shaky cam stuff and some of the, some of not just that film, but other films where, well, that's usually for people where they're trying to mask that they can't really fight kind of thing. Exactly. That's, that's how you can mask that kind of stuff with pushing zooms and digital zooms and shaky cam and all that kind of stuff. You're just trying to cover up. You don't want to double the actor because a lot of times that's not accepted anymore. A lot of times you have to do some of your own stunts and things, especially in like fight action type type work. Uh, it's just too poor looking. I mean, look at some of the shitty Steven Seagal movies on video when he's double. <laughs> I mean, you can clearly, yeah. oh my you gosh. clearly that, that's a drinking game right there. Pick up <laughs> one video Seagal film from the last, say, 15 years and pick out, have a shot every time he's doubled in a fight scene. So, oh man, just a low proof alcohol, probably, if you try that, because you will be dead uh, by the end of the <laughs> so, uh, my, You know, use common sense there, people. Yeah, that's something I really enjoy about um, independent action films like the stuff that you and the folks at Wakali would make is that uh, the people are not cast for being like, this is a big name person and then we'll find a way to cover up that they can't fight. They're cast as this is a person who can fight right. and and then we'll you know make the movie around them. That's right. That's um, intentional. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I have a few questions left and it looks like we have time for at least sure. a few of them. Um, so you've created sort of action genre films a lot where you make uh, like it's a horror movie that has action in it. And um, this podcast is largely about horror, though I'm taking the opportunity to talk with anyone I can about filmmaking. Um, when you're making a horror film and you have action in it like that, how do you keep the action from reducing the tension and sort of sense of danger and vulnerability that's necessary for horror to really be affecting? Yeah, what I do, it, that's all, I think, more in pacing of each picture kind of thing. You really need to check out Blood Prism because that is my, like, if I did an art house horror film, it would be Blood Prism. There's no fight scenes in it. It's all lighting and really in Blood Prism, because there isn't fight scenes to pace the picture, what paces the picture? What are those high spots? Are like gore scenes, death scenes, you know, special effects, practical special effects. Uh, there is no digital in, in uh, Blood Prism at all. So, uh, you know, those scenes, the nudity elements and stuff in a picture like that, which Blood Prism is very heavy on, uh, you, you know, those kinds of things are pacing in place of action fight scenes that I would do in, a, in an action style picture. Uh, okay. You know, I, I think that's what you really have to do is mold and pace things. And that is something I'm very aware of in editing and stuff. I, I want something to happen in an action film every seven or eight minutes i don't care if it's a nude scene i don't care if it's a fight scene it's, it's got to be something <laughs> something that gets your attention going and it's just not endless talking i've seen a lot of more i watch a lot of tubi tv because their library is massive and they do a lot of low budget work uh yes. or acquisitions but man some of the shit is just so flipping boring there's <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a lot of boring stuff and i thought man you know uh so i, I hope if people are diving into my works they really uh think about something like that. If it's one thing I'd like to, you know, people to see my works and say, well, it's not boring, uh, at least a kind of thing. And I, I'm very cognizant about, you know, 
every X number of minutes. I, I want something happening to pace everything along. Uh, but in terms of true horror, I think action and zombies kind of lend themselves to, to together there in terms of an action picture. There's not too many zombie drama films that I think would really mesh well with like crazy fight scenes and stuff like that. But uh, something like Swamp Zombies and stuff, or Swamp Zombies 2 especially, uh, where we get into more comic book looking lighting. I mean, Swamp Zombies 2, if you've ever seen it, in my opinion, I think we did a good job with that kind of stuff because I feel like it looks like a comic book uh, kind of thing. And we were really cognizant about the old EC comics and things like that. I know the writer of the film, uh, uh, Mr. Wallen there uh, was really into EC Comics and wanted Swamp Zombies 2 to have that kind of look. So, and it goes back to what I was saying. You're developing lighting with, you know, fight scenes and things like that to create characters and things. Yeah, I noticed some of the uh, comic book inspired things, including in, um, I think it was Pact of Vengeance, where uh, there were sort of split screen effects going on that reminded me of uh, Ang Lee's Hulk movie. Um, where it looked like you were imitating the the structure of comic book panels, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, with Pact of Vengeance, what we did there was, uh, this is long before even filming began, and I'm talking to editor Steven Steinbacher, who also shot the picture. Uh, a lot of times that's what I try to do, is have my photographer also be the editor if they have those skills. It's a nice uh, mix to have, because then they're on set filming everything, so they see it, and then when they get to the editing room, they know what they've done because they've shot it kind of thing. So uh, a, con a continuous vision. Yeah, and uh, long before Pac started filming, I said to Stephen, I was like, you know, Stephen, I really want this, the story I'm going to give you is a very 80s, simple story picture, much like a Death Wish 3 would be or something like that. Crazy, Annihilator's probably more of an influence on me, the 1986 film of Christopher Stone, the Annihilators. But, uh, I was going to say, uh, uh, yeah, Pact of Vengeance did remind me, the, the two movies that came to mind when I was watching it were Annihilators and um, The Expendables. Annihilators so, definitely was a heavy, I, I would say, influence on it without, you know, this, the story itself isn't too much like it overall, but it's that beat up the neighborhood, round a group together kind of thing and, and take out some punks kind of thing. So, so that's there. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's, it's kind of, go back to your original question there for me. Oh, um, I was asking about, uh, uh, Oh, I, I know Gosh. where I was going with that thought, actually. Right, go uh, right, with Annihilators and stuff like that that we, we mentioned, uh, I had told Stephen, the story is going to be right out of an 80s picture like those. Uh, but I really want the look of the picture to be like Tony Scott's Domino, which, which is in the 2000s there, or maybe 2004, 2005. Uh, the look of the picture I wanted to be more modern looking with the story being an 80s picture kind of thing. So uh, that's what we tried to accomplish there and, and what Stephen did. And I, I think he did a really great job at, at creating that feel for this picture. Yeah. Um. So you've been making about one movie a year for 17 years. What's next? Are we looking for a sequel to Pact of Vengeance? It seemed like it was sort of setting that up. Uh, we have talked about it. I have talked to John Thor just uh, a couple days ago about it. Uh, as you know, we've lost Leo Fong, uh, but yes. I, I had talked to John and uh, he was interested in taking Leo's spot kind of as the commander of the obliterators and the Pact of Vengeance kind of uh, uh, ongoing thing if it happens, but it really depends on budgetary things too. It really does. Uh, the, the days of me working overtime at nursing homes, trying to fund my pictures for like $8,000 and stuff, 
the, the, those days have to be gone. You know, I, yeah. I think we can get a budget of 50,000 or something like that, which still is, isn't, uh, we had a budget of almost 40. Uh, I raised close to 30, I think for packed, but then I put in 10 of my own. Uh, but you know, now with, with, with things, I, I don't know, we'd, we'd have to be able to, to say we can raise a budget, but on the flip side of that, uh, we're trying to sign the film with some different distributors. Uh, Pact is still go undergoing some audio work now, so who knows uh, where that's going to fall. I'm hoping it'll be done here within within a, a few weeks here, but we'll see what happens. But Because uh, I haven't even sent it to distributors yet until it's at its absolute best. I don't want a distributor to come back to me and say, well, the audio's not mixed here or something. Okay. Ah, okay. Well, I knew that and I didn't do it kind of thing. You know what I'm saying? So uh, Yeah, yeah. You know, that's supposedly being done so hopefully a few weeks and then the minute that's ready off it goes to distributors and hopefully it's something i would like to get in with Tubi somehow i know Tubi is slapping a Tubi original uh stuff on some of their films i could see pact of vengeance being marketed as like a Tubi original i think it okay. fits very well with, with uh, what they're trying to do in the horror bracket with some of their shitty shark movies and things that they've slapped the the Tubi original on and uh i could see <laughs> pact, uh, fitting in nicely in the action category is like a Tubi original but uh but i i know uh somebody from crackle uh, TV was interested in it and things like that, but I really want to get the, the the movie sounding its best. It's going to play a couple film festivals in August here, and uh, well, cool. it will see what happens. But but as of what's next, I would you know, it's kind of one of those things where if a distributor signs it and then wants me, you, you know, if they want to produce a sequel and say, Len, we'll give you X amount. Here you go. Here's a producer for you that will make these phone calls and, you know, show up in Arizona, Len. They got a set for you. And I really want to work with a producer from out there, which gets the things going for me so I can focus more on story and direction and things like that. But, uh, uh, yeah, obviously I drop everything and do that if somebody's going to produce Pact of Vengeance, a sequel to it. If not, I will probably backtrack and do something more low-key. Uh, I was uh, co-writing a script called Demoniac, which, which I wouldn't have to have a humongous budget to film. So maybe I go back to my really micro budget roots there and do that instead. Uh, but uh, we'll see. That's set in the world of like live theater and stuff, which I know a little bit about. But uh, it, it, yeah, it's kind of a ghost haunting demon kind of uh, movie there. So, uh, but that's something I could film on a relatively low budget. I couldn't do it for like five thousand, but I could I could do it on a much smaller scale kind of thing. Fifteen thousand, twenty thousand, I could probably get Demoniac looking pretty good. But uh, cool. to Vengeance, a sequel, I, I would need uh, a larger budget for. Yeah, Demoniac sounds interesting. Uh, the premise that you just described reminds me of um, Dario Argento's opera. Yes, it, it, it won't be, it doesn't have influence of that, but yet that world that it's set in is, is kind of similar, yes. Yeah, cool. Um, and that, uh, I like opera, but I don't like its soundtrack at all because it strangely doesn't use opera. It's just this not very good rock and roll. But speaking of better rock and roll, uh, do you think you could get um, the original song from Pact of Vengeance that John Micklethor wrote? Uh, could we get that on, on Spotify or YouTube or someplace so that I could listen to it? Uh, uh, it might be on there already. It, it might oh. be on YouTube. I don't know. I'd have to ask uh, Ted, who co-wrote that song with Thor. He's in Pact of Vengeance as a character as well. He's oh, cool. In the black light uh, drug den sequences and stuff. He's got like a biker vest on. He's kind of a tall, thin guy. Uh, but Ted uh, co-wrote that. He's actually, I believe, the bassist for Thor when he tours in the U.S. here. So uh, we had some of Thor's, uh, along with John uh, Liebel, Liebel. I'm sorry if I pronounced that wrong, John. But uh, John did some of the music on the soundtrack. He wrote the song. Uh, 
in the pool hall, the rock song that's playing when Peter Avalon's fighting and stuff like that in that scene. So yeah, we had, yeah. We, had we had some of Thor's bandmates in the film doing some songs. Thor did some songs. Uh, his songs, Bounty Tracker, which or Bounty Hunter, I'm sorry. Bounty Tracker is a really cool movie with Lorenzo Lamas and Matthias Hughes from 1993. Go check it out. Uh, right. but, uh, Bounty Hunter is the song by Thor that plays right at the beginning of the movie kind of thing. So, and then he has another song, uh, We Will Fight Forever. Those two songs are on his new album, Alliance. Which just which just came out not too not too long ago, a couple months ago or so. Okay, cool. Uh, and then I was going to ask you to just talk about Leo Fong for a long time, but I don't think we have time for that. So instead, um, my last question: uh, Have you played any role playing games like Dungeons and Dragons, things like that? I uh, yeah, when I was younger, my cousin was really into it. So when I had somebody to hang out with that did those kinds of things, I enjoyed it. Uh, I was more an Atari 2600 guy. And then uh, it, it, when my, my brother with his first Holy Communion money bought a, an, an original NES or whatever they call the first Nintendo system there, kind of where you blew on the cartridges and stuck yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Nintendo Entertainment System. Yeah, yeah, we, we did all that stuff. And then Sega and stuff. We were all into that, playing the Joe Montana football games and things. The Streets of Rage 2 was one of our favorite games to play. So instead of more role-playing stuff, I was definitely more into like video game play back, back then kind of thing. So a uh, long time ago, I still got my Atari 2600. So. Okay. <laughs> all right. Um, all right. Then in that case, I sort of predict the answer to this next question will be no, but uh, I myself um, am a game designer. I've released several games and my next one, uh, which you can see the poster for in the background here is Fear of the Unknown. Uh, it's a role-playing game where basically you write uh, a B movie together in over the course of a few hours. You create the setting and the characters and act the whole thing out. Uh, would you be interested in um, playing a game of it over a, a video call like this at some point? I've run uh, games of this for other previous guests, such as the um, writer-producer Brian Patrick O'Toole, who uh, produced Dog Soldiers and wrote... That. Sorry, what's that? I love that movie, yeah. Yeah, he produced Dog Soldiers, and he wrote Evolution and Basement Jack, uh, which are on the Amazon Prime video um, and uh, a few other things. And so uh, you were talking about wanting to get in contact with um, producers. I, I could probably introduce the two of you. Uh, so I am given that, that this game that I've made is meant to emulate uh, B movies like this. I really want to get B movie experts eyes on it to get, uh, useful feedback and you know with any yeah, luck interested. we have to make that happen sometime. all so, right uh, august is a little bit busy for me due to some film festivals and shopping packed around to distributors and stuff like that but uh, yeah i think this sounds like a good time all right yeah let's aim for september then august is also busy for me because of game festivals so <laughs> um great and i don't want to keep you uh past your um appointment that you said you had to get to but yes, it, uh, it is my birthday today actually so oh, i'm going out to lunch happy birthday i am going out to lunch with my family so oh that's, that's wonderful yeah, yeah it 30 minutes so i gotta hop on my motorcycle in this beautiful day in erie pennsylvania and, and get out to, to lunch there great yeah it was my birthday a few days ago so happy birthday right, happy birthday uh cool well i'll talk with you again later um if you'd like to uh at some point uh 
I would love to do is sort of a Leo Fong retrospective, talk there about his enormous career from like uh, Enforcer on Death Row all the way up to oh, Act yeah. of Vengeance. I've heard, I've talked to Leo many, 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 many conversations throughout the last four years. So uh, sure, I'd love to do that. All right, we'll, we'll arrange that sometime. Um, thank you so much and yes, uh, happy birthday and have a good lunch with your family. Take care now. Cheers. Have a good day, man. Send me a link when it's out, okay? Will do. All right, sir. I'm on my motorcycle. I'm out of here. So uh, thanks again. <laughs> I'll talk yes. to you soon. Thank you. Talk to you later. Yes, sir.